So tonight I want to kick you a little bit through the rabbit hole. I like doing that uh, so that we all stretch in some way uh, and under our understanding of the practice. Um, I can always give you the practice in uh, very rational, logical terms. Uh, But um, I feel like uh, one of the values of a teaching is that we all stretch upward. So in order to do that, we have to uh, let go of where we're um, contracted, where we're ruminating on our life, where we're uh, upset with ourselves for not living up to our ideal, where we're um, basically thinking ourselves into our suffering condition. And so, um, not that that doesn't have its basis in the talk, which I will get to in a moment, but only to be able to perceive reality from the drama that we create and hope that meditation somehow evolves us sufficiently or gives us sufficient tools to give us some way to handle the drama in our life is a very limiting way of perceiving what meditation does. I mean, you know, the the Buddha was cosmic. You know, he, he was... You couldn't locate him. And uh, because his, he wasn't basing his reality in the same way that we base ours. And so sometimes it's worth... Uh, stretching in the direction where I think the Buddha was pointing, rather than just staying around our particular uh, area of pain. I was, uh, 1980, I was a monk and visiting Nisargadatta Maharaj in India, Bombay, India. And uh, he, uh, I was very uh, identified with being a monk and very strongly defending what Buddha was saying about this and that. And uh, he, Nisargadatta, was a free man. And so he played with my attachments. And uh, he would uh, play with um, where I was getting very snappy because (laughs) I wasn't winning. So at one point he said, uh, he said to me, he said, you know, you're like a person carrying a flashlight trying to run beyond its beam. And uh, over the years, almost 30 years later, uh, that continues to play upon me. Uh, because somebody who's carrying a flashlight is generating their own madness and then trying to run beyond what they're generating. That's one way of saying it. Or they're trying to do it uh, through their own mechanization, through their own self-empowerment, through their own efforts. And uh, that effort is creating uh, the very system from which they are running from. 
So it does get a little bit like uh, falling down the rabbit hole here. Because much of the way we practice promotes the pain and the mo- uh, which motivates us to practice. <laughs> but we don't see that. We don't understand that. That's not the reality on which we base ourselves. So the Buddha talked a great deal about wise view. And what he really meant was a view being the assumptions we make about life, right? When you look out of your eyes or wherever you're looking out from, what you're basing the world to be when you see it. And most of us see it in very similar ways of objects and subjects, me and you, this and that. Uh, And that perception of reality uh, goes a long way in establishing ourselves an individuated self, separate self, in the workaday world. And it establishes the assumptions within a workaday world. And it establishes very much the energetic reason that we even get involved in a workaday world. And it all has to do with self-acquisition, self-gain, self-promotion, identity of all of that, as well as self-security around financial insecurity, etc. And that all creates a pain because we never have enough money, even no matter how much we earn. And we never have enough acclaim. We never have enough And so there's a sense of poverty that we carry with ourselves even as we try to accumulate the mass of riches. And may I say that this culture has amassed more riches in terms of resources than any culture will ever be able to because there's just a limited amount of that left. So if we're not satisfied, if we haven't resolved our pain within the material wealth of what we have, it's quite likely impossible for any society to be able to do that. In fact, I find this culture to be one of the most unhappy cultures that I've experienced up close, certainly much less happy than Tibetans who don't even have a country or scattered all over the face of the earth because they have something that we don't have. They have a perspective uh, that was imbued, embedded, and abide, they abide with that is so rich that they can maintain a certain joy despite a loss of a homeland. So there's a certain um, malaise, a certain uh, limitation. I think we would all agree, to the lifestyle we live. The problem is that we don't see it within the perspective, the view that we have of life. We think it's because we haven't tried enough, hard enough, within the view we have. That we have difficult circumstances and certain things that upset us and upset the apple cart and 
take us away from what we want, wanted. And if all the conditions were suddenly to come together perfectly, then we would be satisfied. But something always happens and inevitably we fall flat towards that end. And so we really blame ourselves for not being adequate to the task of living or we blame circumstances for undermining when, uh, our successes. And so we never look at the assumptions on which the life has been based. We just think that we haven't tried hard enough within those assumptions. Do you see? Does that make sense? So the first thing we have to do in order uh, to mature is what I call radical accountability. And radical accountability is no, not allowing any more excuses for the way we are. Not saying, oh, if the situations had just been better or if I found a better job or a better spouse or whatever, then happiness would be mine. So the sense of outward blame or the sense of inward blame, that I'm not up to this task, that I have somehow been remiss in my abilities, etc., etc. We just have to be accountable for the state of affairs without blaming self or blaming other. And we have to have that uh, ability to see that what we're doing to life is mind-generated. The value we place upon anything is really our mind's value that we're placing on something. Nothing has inherent value. How can something have inherent value? It's what we project the value to be in terms of appeal, physical beauty, attributes, anything. Desirability. It's what our mind says the worth of something is. Where else would it come from? Where else does it come from? How can any inanimate object have value in and of itself? It doesn't. And when you begin to see that, you begin to say, oh, I'm ascribing this to everything. I'm ascribing the attraction or the aversion of everything from me. It's coming from me. So I have to be accountable to that. I have to be accountable for my attraction or aversion or boredom towards anything. Because nothing holds that as, a, as its intrinsic value. So that's interesting. Now we're beginning to look at why the pain in the view that we hold is self-generated rather than being generated because I didn't find the right job. We began to see that it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with my setting up a particular goal for myself, for the world, that it couldn't, or ideal, that couldn't possibly be lived up to. And that was coming from me, and I was chasing after the image that I was projecting out, and I was always just, 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 it was just beyond grasp. But it made it all kind of fun, because I could chase after my mind everywhere I went. Every time we have a desire, we're chasing after our mind. It's the cat chasing its own tail. Can you get a sense of that? Just got to get a sense of it. 
my need for relationship comes from the pain we feel of not being sufficient in ourselves. Projected out means I need you for me to be complete. Where is that coming from? It's not coming from the other person. It's coming from my need, my pain. But because we're so afraid of looking at that pain, we try to cover over that pain by having a good relationship. Meanwhile, the pain continues. You get in a relationship and it's hideous because the pain of inadequacy doesn't dispel because you found a good person. It persists and now you're jealous or envious or attached. And this person isn't good enough. Right? You see it? Just see it. That's all I want you to do at this point. And we're beginning to see the limit. We're beginning to see the pain inherent in the way we perceive world. The way, inherent way we perceive the world. It's painful because we haven't realized it up until now, but we're generating it. It's all mind-generated. And that's really, a, uh, so much of the Dharma is just understanding that we're causing our own problem. And it's like a carpenter who just keeps beating on his fingers. And it has bandages all over <laughs> Keeps trying to hit the nail, but keeps beating on his fingers. <laughs> The insanity of that, yes? So, up bubbles something in us. It's, it's hard to put this into words, but it can be rather sudden. Uh, some of you have said you've been practicing uh, for some years, but suddenly, something's like something deeply meaningful bit in. Sometimes it takes a long period of practice just for... It's like, I don't know where it came from exactly. I can't tell you the moment or the insight. But something uh, took on a degree of seriousness. And at that point, uh, the intentionality for what and why I do that became a, a very strong pull inward. Right? See, nothing happens without that biting that sense of something, you know, really pulling me, where I get very serious, where it's suddenly very serious work I'm doing, not something I'm playing with to try to sort of self-modify, but something very deep and abiding. A few years ago, uh, Ellen and I were in a couple's workshop, uh, and uh, the man who was doing that uh, said, you know, you can come here and do this workshop, but unless you really intend to heal your relationship, this workshop is not going to be meaningful at all. And I remember looking at the different couples and getting a sense of how serious they were in mending that relationship because some of them, you could feel, had such bitterness, had such history that they couldn't approach each other sufficiently to be able to begin the healing. And others were on the other end of the spectrum, very sincere about looking at their problems and ways to resolve them. And I think that's what the seriousness of the Dharma, when it really strikes us, when the thunderbolt strikes us, it's that 
you know, damn it, I'm not playing with my life anymore. I, and it, it gets into the veins and the blood system. And we just, we want to know now, you know. Maybe it's age that has created that urgency. Maybe it's environmental uh, mishaps or political uh, causality. I don't know. It can be, I don't know. It can be just looking at the state of the world and saying, I don't want to be a part of this anymore like this. Can't be a part of this confusion, this anger. I just can't do it anymore. And so, but whatever it is, it's the heart that begins to pull us into a, a deeply sincere orientation to the pain at hand. And until now, we're no longer trying to play with this thing and trying to, you know, sort of modify ourselves in a polite way, in a nice way, so that we'll have a better character and have a little better attributes, be a little kinder, maybe work a little bit on our suffering, let our emotions out a little bit and come out with a cathartic charge and uh, go back into our life. I mean, that, I know for lo- it's not that that's wrong, it's just not the real teaching of the Buddha. See, what reality are we basing our practice within? That's the topic for the, of, the, of the evening's talk. This reality isn't working. It's not working. The reality of my mind seeing you there and me here, it doesn't work. Try to make it as much as you want to work. It just simply doesn't. It falls flat. And we have since time immemorial to have seen that. It doesn't work. And it's not going to work better. We're not going to reach some threshold where everything becomes governable and harmonious, not within this frame of reference. Never. The frame of reference has to be Changed. We don't change it because we want a utopia. So we're going to get out of this one and get some. We change this because it simply doesn't work. It is not true. The reason it doesn't work is that it isn't true. The assumption that you're there and I'm here is not true. Why does it appear to be true? It appears to be true because that's the way the organ called the brain has organized observation so that it can navigate functionally in this world. Back when we were early in our evolution, a lion would charge us and we needed to know lion, tree, get up it. Right? That's what we need to know. That, and so... If you're saying all oneness, you will be, (laughs) you will be. (laughs) So this organ was a survival mechanism. And over the years, see the evolutionary cycle has taken us out of immediate danger. But we keep perceiving danger 
immediately where there isn't any. We keep perceiving through our projection now because that's the only way this organ works. It only works with me assuming something external. Never mind that the assumption is coming from me. I can place it on you sufficiently so that I believe you actually hold that assumption. I don't even have to check it out. I just know what you're thinking of me. <laughs> right? And so, we have, the lion is everywhere now. And we have created more and more defense mechanisms. More, we've created a contracted spirit behind ever so many boundaries and ramparts to protect ourselves from all the lions that we see. We see lions everywhere. And we're kind of um, enslaved to lions. We need lions. We need struggles. We need enemies and we need dramas. Because that keeps the organ seen effectively. It's like the organ, the brain, does weightlifting through its struggles, through its dramas. And it verifies and validifies why it has to be in a struggled relationship to life because there are lions out there. So it reaffirms the beast even as it projects the beast outward. We're a person carrying a flashlight trying to run beyond its being. And we just keep, not to carry the metaphor too long or too far, but we keep devouring ourselves, clawing ourselves, self-mutilation. And we begin to see that the sense of me is inherent in the way I observe. If I'm going to put life outside of me so I know what's coming at me, I've got to be a person to which life is coming at. And so when I project life outside of me, which is this organ's responsibility, then inherent in that projection is the sense of me that is having to run up a tree. And so I maintain the struggle of having lions in order to protect the sense of me. And I don't want anybody to damage that. I don't want anybody to come too close to that. See how strange it is? It's very strange. This is what we call sanity. This is the epitome of insanity. <laughs> There's a story of the Japanese artist who is so skillful that he draws a very life-like tiger. Same life-size, life-like. And then he goes out and shops, does some shopping, has to leave the house, goes out shopping, 
comes back in. As he opens the door, he had forgotten that he had drawn the tiger and he freaks out when he sees a tiger in his living room. (laughs) Now the practice can take on a tone of very um, deep seriousness. Once we have seen that, you see, we have to have seen that. We have to have used our practice to perceive the problem and to own the cause of the problem as being this mind. That's the first, second noble truth of the Buddha, that all pain is self-inflicted. If it wasn't true, there would be no Four Noble Truths. If pain was out there, I would just be a victim. And there wouldn't be any cure, there wouldn't be any remedy. But because it's entirely self-inflicted, there is a remedy for it. What's the remedy? Stop clawing yourself. (laughs) Stop biting off your own head. Which is very interesting, you see. We ask you to come to a retreat in silence. Now, because this is an artificially induced reality, perception, if you're quiet, it starts getting, it starts dissolving, melting in the snow of the time. You can't, you'll see what it takes to maintain it. You get quiet and suddenly a different dimension of you comes out. It feels bigger, it feels more spacious, it feels not so contained or contracted, not so mentally churning forth. What have we done? We've done nothing. All you've done is entered silence. Remember, I said silence was the teacher here. I just point towards it. And all you're doing is unwinding the knot of our own, of the own self-made tension. So we say, and I try, and Alan tries to guide you in accordance with that unwinding. If you try to get over yourself, then you have yourself as a problem. You've just created a system of running with your flashlight. You see? Now I've got myself as a problem, and I've got to get over myself. It's like every other problem. How are you going to get over yourself by taking... Why are you going to do that? (laughs) The very recognition that you are a problem forms the self that you're trying to get over. Is this too conceptual? Are you following it a little bit? I just want you to see the mess we're in. Not so much get the details, okay? Just get the feeling of it. Just the self-created feeling of it. See, when we're quiet, we have nothing to battle against. There's nothing, we can't create an enemy, we can't create a struggle. So we just internalize the struggle and it's all the things we've done in our life that we regret or all the things that we've planned in the future that we're not going to be up to the task. Or See, we just keep creating it. There's nothing around here that we can really bite against. Well, maybe the person moving next to me who never seems to be quiet enough during the meditation, maybe we can bite against that for a little while, but then that's so obviously not worth biting that we come back down to quiet. But So what you see is your appetite for looking for struggle. 
You see the appetite for generating our own pain. Who's doing it? No, who's doing it to us? No one. You're sitting here on the floor being quiet. No one's even speaking together and most of us are miserable. <laughs> How can that happen? How can that be? And have you ever had the experience of sitting on your cushion and not feeling that the body is really like defined and outlined like you know it to be? So you look at yourself real quick just to make sure that it's all comes back into shape. Close yourself down, it gets kind of vague. Or just things get kind of vague. And because that vagueness feels so uncertain, we have to keep... And maybe after the meditation, we have to go get something, a tea, you know, stimulate something back into having a... Oh, I'm back in charge now. Okay, I'm okay now. We run back to insanity away from sanity. Because insanity is the condition we know. That's the one we call sanity. And we keep reaffirming our insanity. Slowly, slowly, oh, dawns on us, energetically, this organ moves a foot down to the heart. Many of us have long since barricaded the heart uh, from any access because we're so afraid of what emotions might mean about us that we aren't we don't sit at ease with an emotion our emotional life. And so we uh, don't lightly come into this organ. But Inevitably, we're pulled there because the other organ is even worse. It's like, which parent are you going to have? The one that beats me or the one that... So you go into the heart with a lot of insecurity and mistrust. And mistrust is a theme for most of us. We don't trust ourselves having an emotion. We don't trust what we would do from the emotion. We don't trust an emotion itself. And we don't trust other people having emotions either. And we want them to get over their emotions as quickly as possible. If somebody were to cry, you know, we feel like we have to somehow comfort them instead of just leaving them alone to feel the emotion as they feel it. And, but eventually the heart begins to melt. And the quicker we get to this point, the better it is for all of us. And the, what you begin to feel is a true affection and caring that comes from God knows where. My mother didn't teach it to me, we say. My father didn't teach it to me. I had no models. In, but something in us starts to deeply care and be affected and feel the pain of the world and feel the pain of ourselves and genuinely wants to support and help us, wants to turn to that pain and look at it and not blame it any longer because we're far beyond that now. But to use that pain for the next evolution 
of our being towards a greater presence. Because the more present we are, the more love is emitted and the more well-being is felt. True happiness. Not the happiness of the mind. Not the happiness of, of material goods. But the sense of being in love. Abiding in love. Not love of someone or something. But just love for its own sake. The love that can hear the rain on the roof. The love that won't turn away, but turns towards. When something's injured, it's like a little infant. You don't turn away from it and say, oh, grow up. You turn towards the child. You turn towards yourself. You turn towards your heart. You turn towards the pain. And not with any sense of judgment, with wanting to understand it, wanting to understand the system that has locked this and contracted thing into such a state of being. Now, also what happens is that the general perception, the general view of life is also moving and evolving. No longer do I believe in individuated separation because the heart doesn't feel it. It doesn't. This is seen as a lie. And the accompanying thoughts which solidify around what I see and invest in what I see and all the particularizations of what I see are not believed in either. They're believed in in the sense that when I need to know what time it is, I pick up a clock and not a bell. But they're not believed in as the truth. Not the truth. They're functional. Functional. The truth. Now that's something entirely different. See, what reality are we basing our practice within? If we're basing our practice within our own efforts, me going to resolve my problem, there is no way that we aren't further conditioning and hardening the assumptions of that perspective. But when we start releasing the belief in the separation itself, in the sense of me being able to control my destiny, and work myself out, then what's left is a relaxed response to pain, is a relaxed awareness. Not something that has to get over something, but something that fully embraces whatever is there. And so the strategies through which we work are no longer the strategies of individuated power, And the whole burden of the practice is off. Now the practice is one of reconnecting, of rejoining, of heart meeting. Okay, that's it. Just 
before I make a problem, prior to the origin of a problem, I'm present. The presence is there. No problem is generated from presence because I'm not trying to get over anything as an obstacle. A problem is when you try to get over something as an obstacle that you fear what it is. But there's nothing to fear. And the heart keeps expanding outward to becoming more inclusive. It becomes more infinite, more embracing, more allowing, more... That's the true meaning of Christ standing up with his arms. All things, all beings. See, what reality are we basing our practice within? And are we complicating our lives through our practice, through the strategies we're using in our practice? Or are we moving this whole thing in accordance with where it's really supposed to go? Interconnected. Interconnected. the world would look very different indeed if we moved it into an interconnected way of observation, of being. And so the rules now change in terms of meditation to relaxing, allowing, and observing. Because we see that to fight against anything creates the tension of separation. So that's over. And relaxation comes in instead of struggle. And we see that selecting what we like against what we don't like only complicated the pain that was there. And so now we embrace everything with an allowing attitude. Just let it be. Let it be what it is. Don't try to... Don't try to be a... a bouncer at the door, at your club. You're out, you're in, you're out. Everybody come in. We open the gates wide open. Allowance. And we also realize that turning our back and not observing, denying, pretending, imagining, doesn't solve anything. That the only way we can ever cure the pain that's there, is to see it, is to be aware, to make the unconscious conscious. And so now we're on to that. And so wherever there's a difficulty, I move into it. I make it conscious. And then I relax with it. And then I allow it to be what it is. And that is the activity of interconnectedness. And that is the evolution from seeing separately to seeing interconnectedly. It's not as if the mind doesn't see what all minds see. It's just that that isn't believed in as the reality. What's believed in is the unification, the union of hearts, the interconnected union of hearts. See, do we 
What reality are we basing our practice within? And is that reality actually moving to the goal that we long for? And is the inclination of the heart strong enough to make that goal a reality? Because you can be in a couple's workshop and not do any work. It's entirely dependent upon our intentionality to make it work, to make it happen. But if our intentionality is not aligned with the true mechanisms of how the mind distorts and the way the heart heals, then even with good intention we can complicate the process. For some of us we have to journey a hundred miles east to realize that we have gone the wrong way turn around, journey a hundred miles west to come back to the same spot we were decades earlier and know it for the first time. That's really what spirituality is, isn't it? Is getting so frustrated with the mechanics of our own operating system. that we're almost frustrated enough to quit, but not quite. And eventually we turn to the one thing that can heal all things. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.